0: Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 3, Woe Unto My Poor Grandchildren. This week, I want to pick up our narrative with events following the formation of Germany in 1871, and focus on the challenges facing Bismarck as he worked to carve out a place for his new Reich in Europe. You'll recall from the last episode, that after the French surrender at Sedan, Bismarck had isolated and antagonized three major continental powers, in France, Austria, and Denmark, and dispatched each with an assassin's hand. By defeating each power in turn, Bismarck had secured his flanks from any impending attack, which allowed for the unification of the provinces. With all that now in the bag, Bismarck now faced the pressing issue of securing the boundaries of his new German Empire. He identified the three biggest threats, in the French, Austrians, and the proverbial sleeping bear in the east, Russia. Looking at a map of Germany, it does not take long to identify the most obvious disadvantage, its geography. Sandwiched between the French, Austrian, and Russian borders with limited access to open sea lanes meant that German politics of the late 19th century took on a new characteristic compared to the rest of Europe. Germany would be the first state to really use the alliance system to its full advantage. We saw the formation of the alliance system following the Congress of Vienna, but it is under Bismarck where we see the proliferation of this new ideology to lengths unseen up to this point. Even after his dismissal in 1890 by Kaiser Wilhelm II, Europe would further entangle themselves in this distinctly Bismarckian system, with the British, French, Italians, Russians, and even the Japanese getting in on the action before the outbreak of war in 1914. For today's episode, I want to focus our discussion on how this system came into existence, and how Bismarck would become the linchpin for European stability. He created a system which worked, but only worked when he was around to oversee it. And with his dismissal, the pin would be removed, and it would all slowly unravel, changing the overall political situation for good. In the aftermath of 1871, Germany emerged friendless and exposed. Although it had proven itself on the battlefield, the nations of Europe had viewed it with suspicion. The conservative guard of Europe, the Habsburgs of Austria and Romanovs of Russia, feared it was French Bonapartism reincarnated, and they watched with great interest as the country unfolded. In Germany, Bismarck, who now occupied the newly created Chancellor's office, was well aware of the Reich's disadvantage, both in geography and political influence. Dating back before the Wars of Unification, there was a lingering fear which dominated military discussions, the fear of encirclement. Since Germany was a landlocked power, it was exposed on three sides, which left it open for attacks coming from the French in the west, Austrians from the southeast, and Russians from the northeast. The concern over encirclement was what drove Bismarck to systematically isolate the Danish, Austrians, and French between 1866 and 1871. And even though unification had been completed, the fear of a combined assault was more present now than ever. The Chief of Staff of the German High Command, Helmut von Moltke the Elder, claims to have had nightmares of French and Russian forces spearheading into the heart of the Reich, so it goes without saying that addressing the fear of encirclement was priority 1A on Bismarck's to-do list. Bismarck turned his attention west, and his first order of business was to isolate the French and prevent them from ever regaining their strength and launching an assault. Following the Franco-Prussian War, Bismarck imposed a harsh peace on France, but he did so because he understood that the French threat was too great to go unchecked. The 5 billion franc war indemnity and loss of Alsace and Lorraine were both calculated moves which were designed to break the French war effort. The indemnity would throw its finances into chaos while the loss of the two territories would deprive them of raw materials, but also take away a convenient staging area for which to launch an assault into Germany. Despite their punishment, the French were not simply going to roll over and play dead. Their hatred for the Germans became white-hot. Calling a fellow Frenchman a Prussian was the deepest of insults, and there emerged an unspoken philosophy known as revanche, spirit of revenge, in which each man, woman, and child would never speak of the defeat publicly, but each harbored a bitter resentment for anything German. Bismarck had recognized this, and respected the military prestige of the French well enough to understand that it would only be a matter of time before they would come looking for some payback. So Bismarck's primary goal would be to isolate and antagonize the French from the rest of Europe as quickly as possible. His hope was that with no allies coming to their aid, the French would be forced to stall any military adventures against Germany. Bismarck's first step in isolating France was to patch things over with the eastern powers, Austria-Hungary and Russia. In 1873, the three powers entered into a loose agreement known as the Three Emperors League. Now you might be wondering why the Russians in Austria-Hungary would join this funny little club, but remember that 1870 Europe was still predominantly conservative. Bismarck himself was a conservative Junker. Franz Joseph was a Habsburg Emperor, and the Russian Tsar Nicholas I of the Romanov dynasty was about as conservative as you could possibly get. So Bismarck had been able to appeal to their senses by ensuring the other leaders that Germany's main goal was to keep the status quo in Europe. This appeased the egos of the other emperors, as each felt, dating back to 1815, that guarding the status quo was their purpose in life and was practically a divinely appointed task. The Three Emperors League was not a formal military alliance by any means, and in fact it was nothing more than an opportunity for their leaders to meet, get drunk, and discuss whatever matters they decided were of common concern. But what the agreement signified was massive. First and foremost, it had given Bismarck some credibility, and showed the rest of Europe that if the ultra-conservatives did not see Germany as a threat, then no one else should. It also indicated that Germany was not a nation born in the fires of revolution, as, say, Bonapartism in France, but was actually one of the old guard, who just happened to arrive at the party a little bit later. Secondly, the Three Emperors League had left the French completely alone. As you'll recall, after 1871, a new republican government had been established in France. Republicanism, which called for representative assemblies and universal male suffrage, ran counter to what the conservatives believed to be the best form of government. So now, France seemed like the odd man out. And any military buildup on their behalf could easily be spun to look like an act of aggression. Although the Three Emperors League represents a victory in early German diplomacy, Bismarck would not be able to celebrate for too long. The French, having reorganized its political and economic structure following the constitutional laws in 1875, were on the fast track to recovery. Part of this quick turnaround can be attributed to the fact that France saw the payment of the war indemnity as a source of national pride. Following a series of financial laws and tax reforms, the payment of the debt took on an almost obsessive nature, and Bismarck was forced to scramble if he wanted to get out of the rain before the storm hit. Bismarck's biggest concern was that the French would turn to Austria-Hungary for assistance. It was the obvious choice, after all. Both had been defeated swiftly by the Germans, and naturally, both could be convinced that revenge would be most satisfying. An agreement between the dual monarchy and France would be the dead last thing that Bismarck would want to see happen, as it would run the risk of Germany having to fight a two-front war. Luckily for Bismarck, the French held firm, and instead focused their efforts on re-establishing their hold on their overseas colonies in North Africa. Bismarck encouraged these developments. For one, it kept the pressure off Germany. And second, with the French expanding beyond the continent, it meant the increased chance of them bumping into the British. Two powers whose century-old rivalry was still ongoing. Bismarck needed to act quickly, and by 1879 had signed the Austro-Hungarians into a formal military agreement known as the Dual Alliance. Unlike the Three Emperors League, this agreement would actually have some teeth, as both powers pledged mutual support for the other in the event of an attack from the French or Russians. If you know your history, then the Dual Alliance of 1879 would eventually expand and become the infamous Triple Alliance in 1881, after the incorporation of Italy. At the time, the Dual Alliance was not particularly shocking, and no one could have predicted that it would last until the defeat of Austria. But we're missing something here, aren't we? Ah yes, just what the heck happened between the Austro-Hungarians and Russians that made them so suspicious of each other. So we'll leave Bismarck here for now and redirect our focus east, as no discussion of the dual alliance would be complete without an examination of the events which would unfold in the Balkans, an area which will require constant troubleshooting for the next several decades, as nationalist sentiments, particularly within Montenegro, Serbia, and Romania, were seen to threaten the stability and status quo in the region. But let's back up a little bit first, and start off with an examination of the relationship between the Austro-Hungarians and Russians as it was the communication breakdown between these two which touched off the uprising in the Balkans. The Russians and Austro-Hungarians had for years prior been fairly good neighbors to each other. The Habsburg dynasty of Austria and Romanov dynasty in Russia were the two leading conservative governments on the continent, and the two powers had shared a mutual concern in the upkeep of the status quo. The two states had been signatories of the Holy Alliance way back in 1815. But after the failed revolts in 1848, things had begun to deteriorate, and by 1853, it looked like war would be the next step. I mentioned it briefly at the end of the last episode, that during the 1848 revolts in Hungary, the Austrians had come dangerously close to losing their hold on the territory altogether. They were saved this fate when the Russian Tsar, Nicholas I, sent off a military contingent to crush the rebellions and allow the Habsburgs to reaffirm their control. Ever since then, Nicholas I was in the right to assume that the Austrians would repay the favor somehow. Their chance came in 1853, when the Tsar sent forces and occupied lands in the Crimea. But much to the chagrin of Nicholas, the Austrians did nothing, sent no support, nor did they even hint at coming to the aid of the Tsar. This slight stung Nicholas quite hard, and soon imperial policy changed gears. The Tsar had felt the cold shoulder from the rest of the European powers. The British and French were not going to be sympathetic. So the Tsar decided that if Europe did not want him, then he did not want Europe. He was taking the game ball and going home. The Tsar took Russia down a new path, in the form of a new ideology known as Pan-Slavism. At its core, Pan-Slavism was the belief that the people of Eastern Europe were culturally and politically distinct from the West. According to Nicholas, Russia was the new champion of Pan-Slavism and the Tsar believed that his nation had an ordained mission from God to protect and unify the various Slavic ethnic groups, notably the Serbians, Romanians, Bosnians, Bulgarians, and Montenegrins. Nicholas believed that under the leadership of Russia, those ethnic groups could establish themselves as independent kingdoms, giving way to a new Slav-dominated Balkans, with the Russians acting as the de facto ruler. The big issue was at this time, the Balkans remained under the domain of another imperial power, who I will formally introduce to our narrative here, the so-called sick man of Europe, the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, the once great Islamic power which had ruled the Balkans and Middle East for centuries, was a mere husk of its former self. Economically and militarily weak, it was rampant with corruption, which left it an easy target for anyone looking for a peace. In regards to the Ottomans, the rest of Europe agreed that although it was only a matter of time before it collapsed, it was still a respectable nation which had the right to remain in control of its possessions for as long as it could. This was backed by the fact that it had existed in some form or another dating back to late antiquity. So, to the predominantly conservative Europe, it was seen as an intricate part of the status quo in the Balkans. The second assumption was that when the Ottoman Empire did collapse, it would create a power vacuum, with the Russians, Austro-Hungarians, and potentially the British all seeking to gain territory, all while combating the growing nationalist sentiments of the Slavs. So in other words, an Ottoman collapse meant a total Donnybrook over its former possessions. The Russians had made it no secret of their interest in Ottoman territory, and they were determined to insert their influence before the rest of Europe had a chance to jump in and say no. Between 1877 and 1878, the Russians, Serbians, Montenegrins, and Romanians attacked the Ottoman frontiers. The Ottoman military response was a disorganized mess, and the Sultan was forced to sue for peace. These developments alarmed the Austro Hungarians deeply, who called on Bismarck to broker a peace. Bismarck, seeing an opportunity to further impose German influence, agreed and hosted a meeting in Berlin. The Russians, represented by Peter Shuvalov, counselor to the new Tsar, Alexander II, arrived in Berlin feeling pretty confident. They had scored a major victory against the Ottomans and held the majority of the plank chips. The meeting, however, took a very different approach. The other powers, Austria-Hungary, France, the Ottomans, Britain, and Italy, informed Shuvalov that they were only interested in the re-establishment of stability in the Balkans. The Russian councillor was smart enough to know that he could not dictate Russian interest in the face of the other powers as they had not only antagonized the Austro-Hungarians, but also the British. The British being the main threat, as they had a keen interest in the security of Constantinople, which was the gateway to the black and Aegean seas. The Congress of Berlin in 1878 resulted in the redrawing of the Balkans. Russia was forced to withdraw its support of its Slavic allies, but Serbia, Montenegro, and Romania were allowed to declare their sovereignty. This last point was the driving force behind the formation of the dual alliance in 1879. With an independent Serbia, Montenegro, and Romania now at their doorstep, the Austro-Hungarians felt that they were now the next target for Slavic nationalism. To the Austro-Hungarians, these new states were nothing more than Russian satellites, and felt that it would only be a matter of time before the pan-Slavic forces were on the move again. Bismarck, who oversaw the peace talk, was acutely aware of this. Even during the Berlin Congress, Bismarck still reserved the fear of the Austro-Hungarians allying themselves with the French, but now he had a trump card. He could offer the dual monarchy something the French could not, immediate support against Russia. As a security blanket, the Austro-Hungarians received the territories of Bosnia and Herzegovina and administered them predominantly to act as a buffer against any attack coming from the Balkans. But Bismarck had no intention of going to war with Russia for the sake of the dual monarchy. So Bismarck renewed the old Three Emperors League in 1881. This renewal was different from the original agreement back in 1873. Instead of a three-way agreement to discuss common concerns, it now called for Germany to act as a neutral third party and moderate any concerns between the dual monarchy and Russia over the Balkans. This had the added effect of further cementing Germany as a continental power but also allowed it to further isolate the French, all while proving to the British that Germany took the status quo seriously and should viewed as a threat to European stability. With the signing of the dual alliance in 1879 and renewal of the Three Emperors League in 1881, Bismarck had successfully established Germany as a mainstay on the continent. By appealing to the conservative senses of the Habsburgs and Romanovs, it had secured itself stability in the East, all while leaving the French isolated and friendless in the West. And, as far as the British were concerned, Bismarck was a capable statesman who would control issues rising on the continent. This meant that the British could continue to focus on their own imperial standing, without having to worry about being sidetracked with continental affairs. Although it was a totally remote possibility, which never posed much of a threat, it also reflected that Britain would have nothing to gain from an alliance with the French, so Bismarck had succeeded in eliminating that possibility as well. The characteristics of Bismarckian Europe grew from the necessity to protect the Reich from a multi-pronged assault on its flanks. By isolating the French, Bismarck had removed the Western threat, while bringing the Austro-Hungarians and Russians to an understanding had ensured the two bordering powers would not come to blows with Germany or each other. The key thing to take away from all these alliances and agreements is that Bismarck, ever loyal to his conservative background, Saw Germany as a purely European power with no imperial aspirations overseas. To Bismarck, colonial expansion was nothing more than a waste of important resources. While the British, French, Italians, and Belgians were grabbing colonies in Africa, Bismarck shared little of their aspirations by remarking, quote, My Africa is here in Europe. He will remain dedicated to his cause of establishing the German Empire as both a responsible and respectable state eager to uphold the status quo in Europe. The unfortunate thing is that Bismarck's system of alliances only worked while Bismarck was there to steer the ship. In 1888, the old Kaiser, Wilhelm I, died, and his son, Frederick III, was proclaimed Emperor. However, Frederick would only last six months in office before dying of lung cancer, which paved the way for Wilhelm II to gain the throne. Much has been made over Frederick's brief reign, and it raises questions over how things would have been altered had he remained in power. But none of that is either here or there, and we are stuck with Wilhelm II. Unlike his predecessor, the new Kaiser saw Germany as being too powerful to be contained to the continent. Its industrial production was starting to match that of Great Britain, and the new Kaiser felt that Bismarck's tunnel vision on remaining isolated to the mainland was slowly eroding Germany's prestige. In 1890, Kaiser Wilhelm II would dismiss Bismarck and introduce a new form of imperial policy for Germany, in the form of Weltpolitik, literally meaning world policy. This new direction would slowly undo the Bismarckian system, as the Kaiser launched Germany into a massive naval construction program and expansion into the open seas. Removed from office, Bismarck could only watch as the stable Europe he had helped create was slowly unraveled. Neither Wilhelm II, nor any of Bismarck's successors, had the same charisma or political skill that he had. And in eighteen ninety one, the Kaiser would provoke the Russians by failing to renew the Three Emperors League, which encouraged the Russians to seek an alliance with Germany's longtime foe, the French. Bismarck, who would die in eighteen ninety eight, wrote prophetically quote, The young lord wants war with Russia. Woe unto my poor grandchildren. Germany would take on a new persona under Kaiser Wilhelm II. But before we end off this week, I thought I'd end with a little bit of housekeeping. As you can tell, we have finally reached 1890, which I had decided would be a decent starting point in discussing the origins of the First World War. I have taken a few episodes to reach that point because, of course, the events in 1890 did not simply spring up overnight. Not having a decent grasp on why the French hated the Germans or why the Austrians were suspicious of the Slavs and Russians would make understanding later developments a little murky but my hope is that now we have a decent framework in which to situate later events into a broader context. You've also probably noticed that I've spent a lot of time focusing on Germany, but I can assure you that I am not taking the road which claims that Germany was solely responsible for the war, a theory which was popularized in the 1960s by Fritz Fischer. But since its formation, Germany was the most dynamic state on the continent, with a fast-growing population and increasing industrial production, which made it the most important state of the time, and in return, made Bismarck the most powerful statesman in Europe. Historians have universally agreed on this, so I figured it'd be worth spending some time on. We'll have lots more to say about the other world powers, including the Japanese and Americans, but I think we should leave it there for today and pick up next week with the new Kaiser and his vision for Germany beyond the European continent. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you next week.